So, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Tuesday of Thanksgiving week. Tuesday of Thanksgiving week. And we are, we are ever grateful to, to have the opportunity to come together to study your word, to continue in these uh, stories and, and uh, songs and words of David. And we just pray as we do every time we gather that your Holy Spirit, who we know is with us, will fill us with energy and enthusiasm and discernment and uh, understanding, uh, make, us, make us receptive to your word. For in that way, we, we can grow to be ever truer disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, friends, so anything y'all want to chat about? Yes, sir. Well, being a novice at this, uh, I want to know if prior to Jesus, did David and Saul and Solomon go on to eternal life? If prior to Jesus, did David, Saul, and Solomon go on to eternal life? So, I think the probably the straightforward answer is no that they also await the full um, redemption of God's creation and Jesus's return and the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection. Um, there's a point in the book First Peter where it talks about Jesus after he is crucified going down to talk to the spirits in prison and share with them the good news. And, um, and it says, including even those who from the days of Noah, which means they were filled with evil from, from morning till night. So the kings and the people who die before Jesus, they are, they are they were part of God's people. But there's still this sense that they have to wait for something. It's like when we can, we can bring it up to the time of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, one question that they have for Paul is, well, you know, Paul, my, my, my grandma's dead, and she missed all of this. Is she kind of like out of luck? And Paul said, no, that when Jesus returns, um, we will, we who are, if you combine it with 1 Corinthians 15, we are, who are here will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and those who um, died will be, will be raised, and we will meet Jesus metaphorically meet Jesus and so it isn't that they are excluded it's just they too have to wait just as um, for the full for the full um, material enjoyment of the new heavens and the new earth okay I do want to talk with you you asked about eternity you know we, we always think of eternity as being at the end, right? You work your way through and then finally you get to eternity. But in the New Testament, it's more wonderful and subtle than that, that when you are reborn in Christ and when you are put right with God thereby, you at that point step into eternity, right? And that's a hard thing for us to think about. It's a hard thing to process, but it's, it's sort of part and parcel with God's work in our lives now, right now. That it's, it isn't, um, 
all just something we have to wait for. We all have all been born a second time. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. We have stepped into eternity with God and what we await after our death will be the full realization of that, manifestation of that um, in the new heavens and the new earth and our resurrection when you and I can sit down and I hopefully have a cold beer together. I don't know if you like beer or not, Phil, but yeah. Yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> Charlotte? So when Jesus said to the thief next to today you'll be a paradise with me. Yes. Think of that paradise as a beautiful garden, but you're still waiting for something. Because he isn't promising the thief the thief is going to be resurrected the next day. See, what we Christians, so many forgot for hundreds of years, was that we are born, we live, we die. There is a life after death, which Isaac talks about. But that's not the end. The end is a life after. A life after life after death. That life is resurrection. That life is re-embodiment. That life is the marriage of our bodies and souls again, which are ripped apart at, at death. And so the New Testament surprisingly doesn't say much about our immediate life after death, however long that might last from now until when Jesus returns. It has a lot to say about the new heavens and the new earth, the life of resurrection, uh, God's victory over sin and death. Um, so, and it's resurrection that is our, our own resurrection that is really the great Christian hope, okay? Great Christian expectation because I would actually like to be able to hug my mom again. I know it's kind of cool to think of maybe, uh, maybe it is, I don't know, just kind of being spirits floating around somehow, but I want, there is goodness. There's goodness in a hug, right? You know that, there's goodness in a hug. There's real deep moral goodness in a hug. And so it doesn't surprise me then that the God who is, who is love is committed to our material resurrection, our re-embodiment, um, so that we can hug or sit down over a cold beer. I mean, Jesus eats fish, so I guess I could drink a beer, you know, right? So, so that's it. Just there is everybody always wants to ask me what happens to us after we die. I get that. I get that. Paul says he's going to be with Christ, and that I can't imagine anything better. But it's not the end of the story, right? It's not where God is taking all of this. It's taking us toward Jesus' return and eternity with Christ and, and, and re-embodiment so that we can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so, wow, okay. Anything else? Yes. That's an interesting question, okay? So the question was this, when the new heavens and new earth arrive with the Holy Spirit 
still will still dwell in each of us? And I would say the answer to that, based on 1 Corinthians 15, is yes. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses like 43 and 44, that we are no longer going to have bodies animated the way they are now. And for the Greeks, that was animated by, by, by our souls. And instead, Paul says, we're going to have Greeks animated by spirit. And exactly what he means, I don't know, right? But if you are, if you are in Christ's presence, right, and um, I, I'm just going to say, I think Paul would probably answer that question, yes. But you know what? We'll all find out, won't we? <laughs> we'll, all, we'll all find out. It kind of fits with my overall theological understanding of what the Bible says and what Paul says and others say about this life after life after death um, when we are re-embodied. Um, but truth is, we have, we have a jillion questions about all of that, about resurrection. So, like, what, I love my granddad. What's he going to look like? I'm going to guess he would prefer to come back with hair because I never saw him with hair in my entire life. He lost his hair like at 25. I'm guessing if he had the choice, he'd have hair. Will I recognize him? I don't know. It's all going to be better than we can possibly imagine. So however uh, much goodness you can pack into it, pack that, but realize that you're limited by our own imaginations, but not by God's imagination. Anything else? I probably can't answer. I don't know. This, I guess I get these asked questions a lot, and the, the Bible just doesn't say as much as we'd like. You know, Scott, yes. in Matthew 6.34, Jesus said, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Lord yes. has its own problems. Worry about today. Yeah. Well, as individuals, if we can live every day like this is heaven on earth, Yes. In other words, enjoy nature with his creation and everything. Yes. If you could live that way, that's a precursor to just a pinch of what heaven's going to be. Because even with all the stuff going around you and everything, all the bad stuff, if you have a mindset, this is going to be a great day, I'm going to make a difference in somebody's life, I'm going to pay it forward, uh, life will be much better. Most of what consumes us, so much of it is about the future. And some of it is about anxiety around, you know, changes in the world we don't like or dis wars or whatever it might be. But some of it is also even just the need to like, this is what popped into my head, to financially plan for retirement. Well, in eternity, I don't have to worry about that. Won't that be nice, right? Amen there. <laughs> Amen there. Yeah. So, so I think you're right. And so I hadn't really thought about it quite that way, but, but well, you always have a problem safe yeah. lurking because when you get into that mode, he's going to try to get you out of that mode. So well, and, really and just the world does the, the world. also, right? So just, yeah. it's just the, the fact that we live, we live in a broken world and, uh, and it, as a result of our own rebellion against God and we, no matter how much Jesus says, don't worry, don't be anxious, yeah. talk to my wife about the difficulty <laughs> of shedding all of that. But there won't be the things to worry about and to be anxious about. Um, I'm, I'm hoping I don't even have to work out to get a six-pack. I, I don't know. <laughs> six pack. That's not fear. 
That's not beer, baby. I know it could be. We could be back to the beer discussion. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. So anything else? <coughs> okay, well, let's return to David. Now, just remember, we are in this series of appendices. And they're not just kind of, well... Maybe they are somewhere between incredibly well organized and thrown together, okay? And there is some organization because you have some narrative at the beginning with a Gibeonite problem. You have some narrative at the end. And right now we are in the middle section, um, including these words of praise of David. And then we're going to move to David's last words. But I believe that we need to begin at verse 38. But before I do that, I have an announcement. Now that I have your attention, now that I've remembered to move to the next slide. Okay, so this Sunday, we have a guest coming to the church. It's Dean Todd Still from Baylor University. He's dean of their seminary, Truett Seminary. And um, we at St. Andrew and they at Truett are building some links um, together. Uh, we think they could be a place that we could go and look for future, future pastoral staff, for one, because um, theologically they are closer to us than, for example, Perkins is, I think, o overall. So he's going to be here. He and Arthur are going to be in my 11 o'clock class, and they're going to talk for about 40 minutes. I'm not sure about what, but I'm sure it'll be wonderful. And then they're going to leave, and then Lauren and I are going to do a little Q&A back and forth for the final 20 minutes of my class at 11 o'clock. So it would be really great if I had a big turnout, if we had a big turnout in the 11 o'clock class for Dean Still. And everybody who's met him just says he is the best guy. So I'm looking forward to that. And then at 5 o'clock, he's going to be speaking in Hasley Chapel. And he's going to be speaking about the first generations after Jesus. His, like his specialty is the early church. And so he's going to be talking about those first generations after Jesus. Um, and I'm sure it will be fascinating and helpful. And when he finishes speaking, I'm going to do a Q&A with him. I will be his questioner, his the one who represents the audience, I guess, um, in asking some questions of him. I already have several questions lined up in my head. They're the ones you all ask me a lot of the time and I stumble around with, so we're going to see if he stumbles. Anyway, so that's going to be at 5 o'clock on Sunday um, afternoon and the Cowboys play on Thursday, so there you go. No, no Cowboy problem. Yes? Uh-huh. And the reason is because they are not so much Southern Baptist. They are more, I think if the term was General Baptist, it's like a General Baptist Convention, I think. They are Arminians, there are quite a few Arminian theologians on their faculty uh, as opposed to Calvinist. And, and we as Methodists are Arminian, okay, which means we emphasize God's love and our free will 
rather than um, overemphasize God's sovereignty and God's decree and God's deciding everything that everybody does and is going to do. That was a rather abrupt definition of it all. But anyway, so those kind of, it doesn't surprise me because that's kind of where they are and that's why we think that they might be a good, a good match for us and yet they are very orthodox, very biblical um, and are committed to remaining that way as we are committed to remaining biblical, orthodox, you know, Jesus-centered, biblically-based, all those kind of words that we use and that we mean. So, yeah, and there was a hand over here. Okay, very good. Perkins has gotten very, now there are some, there's some wonderful professors. And when Lauren Gerlach was down there, she latched on to these orthodox biblical professors and they latched on to her. But there are, there are a lot of very liberal, not so orthodox folks down there at Perkins Seminary. And so I know when Lauren started, Arthur told her that he and I were going to help keep her <laughs> help her keep her mind as she when she was down at Perkins but she latched on to Roy Heller and a few others who um, are biblical and orthodox and um, but this seminary is one that is pretty theologically aligned with, with us so we'll see we'll see what comes of it all yeah anything else all right, so I put that up. I'll just put this map up because I have it. I don't think we'll need it for anything today. So we're at verse 38 in chapter 22 in this long psalm, basically, okay? So, now David is, this is a psalm. This is the, the person he is addressing in this is is God and everybody who will listen to them. And he's being, and he, he kind of swings, praising God, thanking God and in this. Um, and we covered a lot of the ground in that last week. So I'm just gonna pick up right there. This, most think this comes from fairly early in David's days, still focused on his struggles, you know, with the Philistines and his overcoming of them. And he says, I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You, this is God, armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. So this is really, you know, the, the David who is ready to um, acknowledge and turn to God and acknowledge God's help to him in his struggles. Um, he says, they cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. Okay? 
David is king of the Israelites. They are the people God chose um, through whom to save the world and their mission and vocation and relationship with God is not the same as other peoples of the world. They are the only people on the planet that God is dwelling with at this time. Um, he dwells with them in a way that God is not with others. It's just the project that begins with, with Abraham and reaches its culmination in whom? Who does God's rescue project culminate in? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Shout it out, baby. Jesus. There we go. Yeah. I had a Baptist friend when I was in junior high school in Shreveport, and he, and he, and he took me to a, a revival with him. That was quite an experience for, Epis, for an Episcopalian altar boy, I have to tell you. Yep, so. <clears throat> verse 43 I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. That's all very dramatic wording, isn't it? This is, this is a David who is just over the top happy with his victory over his enemies. And for the Israelites, those victories are evidence, were evidence that God indeed was with David and was with them. As I think I probably mentioned, for example, in the book of uh, um, Judges, in the book of Joshua, when the people do as God instructs them to do, they win. When they decide they know better, they lose. And so that is an ever-present theological theme in this, to, to turn to God, to do as God teaches you. Don't think you know better. I just saw a meme the other day from a theologian um, in Australia that I read some of, and it was basically, you know, <sighs> scriptures about learning dependence rather than independence. That's a hard thing for Americans. We, at least the world I grew up in, we were largely taught to be very independent, to build, to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, to become financially independent. Independent, independent, just independent, be strong, all of this, it's up to you, it's up to you, it's up to you. So when you come to the Christian faith, and it is really about learning to depend upon God, um, that's, that can be difficult. It's easier if the world humbles you. I, I, was, I was probably 37 or so before I encountered some things in my life personally and professionally that I could not fix. And I, I was stumbling through it all because I'd always been able to fix it all, you know? I, yeah, and, but now I couldn't. And those experiences, I think, um, are, are valuable in the sense that they can teach you to be dependent. I know um, my, my beloved mother got something wrong theologically. She said, 
I remember her saying to me more than a few times, she would refer to people as, well, they're foxhole Christians. They only come to God because they're in trouble. And at the time, I didn't think too much about it. That's a very Connecticut way of seeing things, I think. But that's, that's, that's not the right way to see it. Of course, we, of course, we're more inclined to come to God when we're in trouble. Because when we're not in trouble, we think we're just fine. Look at David's story, right? When you're in trouble and you realize, wow, wow, then you come to God. When my, y'all know the story, my story and my life before Patty, which was, had some ups and downs. I was divorced, not one time, twice. I was a, when I met Patty, I was a two-time loser. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, I really, how the, this, this is Scott. How could this be? How could this be? So my second wife ran off with her bartender. <laughs> True story, a balcony club in Lakewood. So she ran off with her bartender, and the first thing I did, this was just my instant reaction, and I think it was God working on me and all the years before. My instant reaction was to fall on my knees at my bedside every night and to run down to First Methodist Church Dallas and join the choir. Because <laughs> I had hardly graced the doors of a church for five years because my wife didn't want to go, and I told myself I needed to get this done with my dissertation and all this other things, and I, like, yeah, was it a mess? It was a mess. So, you know, when I talk about being rescued by God, it's really God and Patty together that, that rescued me. But my point is that in those dark moments, where did, I, where did I run? I ran to God. In the book of Revelation, the most famous image probably is the image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What do they bring? They bring war, that's one. Famine and economic upset, you know, is another one. Um, they bring uh, pestil pestilence. Well, okay. They bring death. So, do we have all that stuff? Do we need four horsemen to come riding in with it? No. It's all present with us. It's all with us, all of the time, and um, so much of the book of Revelation is really meant to shake people up, to try to urge them to see that they need to be, that, that they are dependent upon God. Um, it's kind of like a, the proverbial two-by-four upside the head. So, um, dependence. It's, it's what we need to learn. So, okay, verse 44. David says, You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. That's a reference to his kingship, of course. Because this is partly about David, and it's partly about the kingship of Israel. Remember, the kingship of Israel got off to a rough start. It got off to a rough start with Saul. It wasn't even what God wanted. God was to be their king. So for the Israelites, part of what is happening in these appendices is to kind of pull the David story together as the story of the kingship of Israel. 
that this is this is God's hand at work in all of this David goes on people I did not know now serve me foreigners cower before me as soon as they hear of me they obey me they all lose heart they come trembling from their strongholds um, I don't know that all of that is <coughs> admirable, but it's honest. It's honest. Uh, I think one of the things that you have to learn when you come to Scripture is that its goal is not to present you with one admirable moment after another, one virtuous moment after another, one virtuous person after another. It is honest. It's honest. Do you desire revenge sometimes? I do. I try to shove it away because God says vengeance is mine and revengeance, you know, is is the old like the old Chinese proverb, he who he who pursues revenge should dig two graves. But still, your heart wants it sometimes. You want people to get it, to get what they deserve. And so you see that expressed in the Psalms and in multiple places in Scripture because it's who we are. Um, and it's a blessing that all that stuff isn't cleaned up because we wouldn't relate to the Bible as we can if it were all just cleaned up and we couldn't identify with with any of it. Um, if David if David had done nothing wrong in the book of Samuel would he seem as much like a real person or more like some sort of mythological hero? I think it'd be more like a mythological hero, but he does do wrong, and he does ache, and he does hurt. And whether it was his taking of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, or his inconsolable grief over the death of Absalom, knowing that he was really the one that put all those uh, wheels of violence in in motion, you you meet a real person. And that is one of the things that makes the Bible different from a lot of ancient literature of, that is hero literature. Is Abraham always a hero? Is Isaac always a hero? Gosh, gosh no. Isaac inspires with his mother to steal, you know, his Jacob does. Jacob conspires with his mother to steal his birthright from his brother Esau. So, but they're all flawed. And in that, who are they like? They're like us. They're like us. Sure they are. So, verse 47. The Lord lives. Yahweh lives. Praise be to my rock. Because God is unchanging. God is the rock. A lot of things can swirl around you and your life in this world, but God is 
your rock. God is there. If you feel like God is drifting off into some distant galaxy, and further and further away from you, God hasn't gone anywhere. You have, but God hasn't. There are certain things, people will come to me and they will say, you know, I want to I, I, I get closer to God. I want to, you know, lead a more Christian life or whatever words they use. And so I proceed to tell them, well, okay, this isn't complicated. I'm, I'm on a whole thing right now. I'm so tired of people saying, well, it's just very complex. Most of what I observe in this world is just not that complicated, including this. <coughs> Come to worship every week. Every week. I don't care if you don't feel like it. I don't care if the Cowboys are playing at noon and you don't want to miss the kickoff. I don't care. Get to worship every week. Get involved with a group. Maybe it's a class. Maybe it's a service group, okay? Something you've got to get involved in fellowship with other Christians. You've got to get to know other people. They will help you stay on this path. Spend time in scripture. We devote so many years of our lives to our vocations in life, whether we're accountants or whatever we might be, that just take a fraction of that and devote it to the study of scripture and theology, and it will, it will bring you deeper. Learn to pray, pray every day. Patty and I pray every night before we go to sleep. She does most of the talking, I will grant you that, but, but that's, the, that's the pattern for the day. So, um, yeah, so <clears throat> it's find ways to keep, just small ways to keep God in front of you throughout the day. Some people will carry little things in their pocket to remind them. They're, um, figure out where to serve, somehow. I mean, everybody's got a job. We all have jobs, we live in this world and there's much in this world that needs to be done and that should be done and enjoyed. But Christians can show you very straightforward ways to embed yourself ever deeper so that you move out of the place where I was too long in my life, which was that I was sort of a Sunday morning, Wednesday night choir, Sunday morning Christian. And as far as I, I was concerned, God could leave me alone the rest of the time. That's not a good way to be. I see that now. It was my loss that I spent too many years that way. So. Okay, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted, exalted, lifted up. Put God up there. You can't lift God too high. We want to be <laughs> lifted up there, but that's not good. Lift God up there. <coughs> exalted be my God, the rock, my Savior. Because David knew that on way on very very many occasions God had saved him indeed God did not even abandon David after his the sin he commits against Bathsheba and the murder of her husband does he no the Nathan, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David about it you know that's that's not abandonment that's simply 
Here, David, look what you've done. Look what you've done wrong. And oh, the consequences are going to be terrible. So, he is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man, you rescued me. I assume that violent man is Saul. Because most scholars think this comes from an early period. Therefore I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king, getting back to this emphasis on the kingship in Israel, God's kingship, this God's anointed one. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed. That's David. Kings were anointed. Samuel shows up and anoints David when they pull him in from the backyard. With, he's been hanging out with the sheep or wherever he has been. Um, that is, the anointed one is the word Messiah, which we bring into English as Messiah, which is taken into Greek as Christos, which we bring into English as Christ. At their heart, they are all royal terms. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So it, that last closing paragraph is just all about the enduring nature of the kingship. It's David, his descendants, they're all going to be the anointed. Because remember in 2 Samuel 7, God came to David and said, One from your household will always sit on the throne of Israel, and that will be true for about 400 years. Then that, then that line will come to an end. And by the time you come to Jesus, there are a lot of Jews who are waiting for, one to, for God to raise up one from that line who would be God's anointed. God's Messiah. And who is that person? Okay. So, that is chapter 22. Any thoughts, reflections? Mr. Brooks. Yes. Right. War, well, it's like war, violence, um, uh, economic turmoil, and death. Yep. So, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I always enjoyed, I always enjoyed teaching Re Revelation. It's, it, it's, it's a hoot. Um, and not, it's not a book to be afraid of. And you should not let people use it that way with you. It's not. Okay, so, anything else? Well, let's go on. Now, David's last words, this is chapter 23. So, these are not, let's put David's last words in quotation marks. These aren't like the, this would be pretty strange if they were the last things to come out of David's mouth is, 
you know, he's passing away. What makes these his last words? It's because they are the bookend to the story of David. What's the other bookend? Go back, open to, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2 is Hannah's song, remember? Hannah is the mother of Samuel, right? <coughs> okay, Scotty. So, this is a prayer um, that Hannah sings, and look at the very last, the last phrase, the last stanza of it. Chapter 2, verse, the end of verse 10. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. So, Hannah says, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the power, that's what the horn is, the power of the anointed, the king. So you see, so that's sort of one book in, and now David, who is the anointed, his last words, as you will see, is the other book in. It's just a way of bringing things to a theological conclusion, because the story of David is the story of the kingship. So, verse 23, so let's go back to chapter 23 in 2 Samuel. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. This is the great David the great King David, the idealized King of Israel. You and I know that there's a lot of warts on this king, right? If we only had the Book of Chronicles, you wouldn't know about those warts by and large. But blessedly, we have the Book of Samuel, so we see a picture of the whole man. But he is still God's anointed. He will die God's anointed. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. So here's what God tells David. This is, this is, this is who kings are supposed to be. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, now that fear of God is a phrase very common in the Hebrew, which simply means rules in the knowledge that God is God and the king is not. Because kings are very prone to thinking they're God. That's, that's how they become takers. They think they're at the top, of the, the top of the hill, but they're not. You have to live your life. We have to live our life now recognizing that God is God and we are not. And that we 
We, are, we need to recognize that we are dependent upon God. We need to humble ourselves before God because we are no different than people have ever been. We're no different than Adam and Eve in the story of the garden that we want to be like God's ourselves. That's humanity's fatal flaw because we're not capable of it. Not capable of it. Okay? So, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This is who the kings should be. The kings of Israel, any, any king, but especially the kings of Israel. They need to rule in righteousness. Now, from whom do they learn what is right? God, exactly. From whom do we learn what is right? God. It's God who is, who is in his being good. It is God who in his being is righteous. So, it is God who teaches us what right is, and it's God who teaches us what wrong is. That's what the whole Old Testament law is about. It's all this case and example and example after example of, of what it means to do right. Some of it's very striking, even in today, in today's world. We look at it and we think, well, gosh, you know, who's going to really do that? Who's going to take their enemies? You know, you find your sworn enemies wallowed on the ground. Who's going to take it to them? With the cash left, left in it. Well, the right thing to do is to take it to them with the cash. So, so this ruling in righteousness, ruling in the righteousness that God teaches us, ruling as a king in the understanding that he is merely king and not God. Well, that's just the best thing. That's like the light of morning at sunrise, on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That's, that's the kind of kingship the writer is saying in which, in which the people can flourish, in which Israel can flourish. What? Well, sure. Okay. Yes. Is it pointing toward Jesus? Yes, absolutely. And it's point. I'm going. To, I'll give you one route for that pointing to Jesus. When you turn, when we go hundred, several hundred years ahead, we go to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah writes about all of the bad shepherds of Israel, and because the shepherds were the kings. Right, taking care of the people. And he writes about, oh, God says, oh, these people, they're all just bad shepherd, bad shepherd, bad shepherd. I will be the shepherd for my people myself, God says in Jeremiah 34. So what do you find then when you go to John's Gospel, John 10? What does Jesus say? I'm the shepherd, right? So I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the righteous king. He is the one who, who does rule in righteousness, right? 
Um, and it's the history of the Old Testament is the history of people being unable to do to do that, unwilling to do that. So, good question. Verse five: If my house were not right with God, surely He would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Now we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago. This is another place that, you know, I read it and I, 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 I tweak a little bit under it because David seems to be of the opinion that the only reason God has made this covenant with him is because he had his house in order. But when David takes his house, his family, and he blows it up with the taking of Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, and all that flows from it, does God abandon David? No, God made a covenant with David. That covenant is not dependent upon David's weakness. In a way, it is the problem that God has, even when you come to the time of Jesus, because God had made a covenant with the people of Israel way, way back at Mount Sinai with Moses. And the people had their responsibilities and God has his responsibilities and the people are, in the end, if you boil it all down to, simply love God and love others. And they don't, and they have it, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't. Which means the promises of God are going unfulfilled. And there doesn't seem to be a solution to it because there's, I mean, you know, we're, we're, look at the world around us. There's not a solution to it, but God provides that solution by providing one faithful Jew who will love God and love others every day and in every way as what you might think of as a representative Messiah, representative of all of Israel and hence all of us. And that, of course, is Jesus. So, so it's... God figures out how to keep the covenant because God makes promises and God keeps promises. He's a great promise maker and the great promise keeper. And he figures out how to do it despite the unwillingness or inability of the people to keep their covenant. And with David. Remember, David is given this promise about his household in 2 Samuel 7. That is four chapters before he takes Bathsheba and murders her husband. You know, gosh, you almost wonder sometimes, I just I do, if that promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7 creates in him a certain complacency or a certain pridefulness that leads him to do what he does to Bathsheba. I don't know. But they're not as... If my house were not right with God, 
after the sin in the garden, nobody is deeply, truly right with God until you come to Jesus. Now I could show you verses, Paul talks about Abraham as, as being a righteous man and the word is used, but um, the deep rightness with God, this, this problem that has to be fixed, is only fixed in Jesus. Only fixed in Jesus. And even Abraham is only a signpost to that. It's not the full thing. Kind of like being on the road to Shreveport, you see the sign that says Shreveport 100 miles. Well, that's great, but it ain't Shreveport. Not that there's any reason you'd want to go to Sheepport. I can say that having, having spent a lot of my life in Sheepport as a kid. Okay? If my, so let's look at verse 5. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secure in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. You know, it's, 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 we Christians don't look at the world through rose-colored glasses. We understand that we're only, we're only right with God because of what Jesus did, not because we have put our house in order. Verse 6. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. You know, it's... I guess I would say, who do you choose to hang around with? Who do you want your kids to hang around with? You want your kids to hang around with those who will help them grow to be strong Christians, good virtuous men and women? Probably. I do. I did. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. There's a very sort of a binary view in Scripture. There's a lot of binary views in Scripture. One of them is between those who are gods and those who are not. Those who strive for God and the evil ones who do not. And you see it in place after place after place after place all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. Okay, so any thoughts or reflections on any of this? Because that's, that's it for that little bit. Yeah, about the pruning, right? Because of the vine, if you look at grapevines, they're all interwoven, right? So Jesus prunes off the vines that aren't bearing fruit so that the whole vine can grow stronger. It's also like the parable about the wheat and the weeds. When the um, landowner has the fields planted and the, 
servants come in and say, well, you know, there's a bunch of weeds growing up out there amongst the wheat. Let us go pull them. And the weed owner says, nope, 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 because you don't know a wheat from a weed, basically. I will do that at the end, and that I is Jesus. He, he is the one who can make the judgment about <coughs> who's, who's a weed and who is wheat. But um, again, it's that, that one, of the, one of the many binaries in the Bible. Okay, anything else? Yeah. So Pat is suggesting that David is hanging on to this very, to an elevated view of himself. I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not what he intends with this. Um, I don't know that recognizing that he is striving to be among the righteous, or maybe is among the righteous, and that there are plenty of people who ignore God utterly. I don't know that that is what I mean by trying to elevate oneself to the place of God. Sometimes that's just, sometimes that's just being clear-eyed about there being those who do good and those who do wrong. And there's a lot of wrong in this world, but there's a lot of good too. Okay, and in the last six weeks in Israel, we've seen a very clear cut. It should be morally clear to everybody, you know, the depth of the commitment to evil by way, way too many people. And they are not people we want to be counted with. I don't want to be counted with them. Okay, and I, I'm not counted with them. So, but you, you know, it's just, it is, what's the great sin from the Garden of Eden? They want to be like God's themselves. So I can't ever really argue with somebody who says to me, well, so-and-so thinks they want to be God. That is the, that is the deep taproot of human sin. That's where it all comes from. That, that the deep taproot of human sin is human pride. That's why pride isn't one of the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins does not include pride. Pride is the taproot, and the, if they used to have all illustrations of the seven deadly sins, pride would be the taproot of the tree, and then the, the, there'd be these seven branches for the seven deadly sins, because yes, I've <laughs> it's like when Copernicus sh shows that, well, you know, no, the earth is not at the center of the, and the sun does not revolve around the earth, it's vice versa, that what a lot of people did was they just put themselves at the center of it, when, and that the earth revolves around me, around us. So, I hear you, Pat. Anything else? Nope. Talk a little bit about the covenant. Okay, so we know of the four covenants all the way from Noah, Abraham, Moses, and, and David. 
What about, and then we have Jesus, the covenant for us. He came here. How does that little bitty country up there look right now as to what's happening to them? Are they, and God, that's God's chosen people. Most of them believe in God. But most, I guess most of them believe in God and most of them don't. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm someone who tends to be pretty careful about the word covenant. Covenant to me is, is a two-way deal, like a treaty. That's not the Abrahamic covenant. That's not what people, it's, um, that's not Noah. That's not even David. Those are promises made by God where God doesn't ask the person of anything. The covenant at Mount Sinai is different because the people are given responsibilities. And um, Jesus comes and what happens when Jesus comes? What is, what, is, what, is, what is swept away? First of all, the covenant with Moses comes to its fruition. It is kept now in Jesus. The pre, thus, the priestly system passes because you can't have a priest higher than Jesus. There's just no reason, no function. The sacrificial system is passive because there's no reason, there's no function. The people of God are no longer merely those who have the blood of Abraham in their veins. They, the people of God, becomes whom? Those who have faith in Christ. Right? And in the early years, those are all Jews in the 30s AD and early 40s AD. And then the Gentiles begin to come in. But that, that sort of badge of membership becomes not, I got, I got Abraham's DNA in me, to, um, to, to, to faith in Christ. And um, the Holy Spirit, who God's presence, who had, who had left, really, if you look at Ezekiel, who had left when, at the time of the Babylonian um, uh, invasion has now returned on the day of Pentecost and now the church is the temple and the people as individuals are temples of God so the marble temple doesn't matter anymore and so I don't think that anything you might see today in Israel has anything to do with this I, I am not among those who think that the you need to look to you can look to the Bible to understand what's happening in Israel and with the Palestinians and all that stuff today, or the temple's got to be rebuilt. I just don't think that. I, I just don't think that is. That is it. That's focusing too much on a particular place, and that place has been transcended now by Jesus. Jesus says, "What? Go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So, I really think that part of what Jesus' message was, was, oh, my fellow Jews, don't focus on your ethnicity. Don't focus on this land, or you are not going to understand what's happening. And one who doesn't understand is Nicodemus in John 3, who doesn't get it. Right? Okay. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if I said anything about what you asked, but... <laughs> well, there, I guess my question would be, how protected are they now? Are they, it, 
Will it ever happen in our time, you think, that Jerusalem would be bombed? Because that's where Jesus Sure, Jerusalem could be bombed tomorrow. I mean, and that whole country could be wiped out in an instant. It could be. So could New York, Moscow, any so place. That is what the, oh. But I don't... I, it, there's no promise that Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. Yeah. And if you follow the, the gospel and all the things that are happening, we have yet to get to the Antichrist. To come on the and, and in Scripture, there's not, there isn't the capital A Antichrist. is nowhere here. Antichrist is a word which means against Jesus, and there are Antichrists, lowercase a, plural. And there's just a lot of... Well, there's a lot of false teaching. There, there's just a lot of people who got, who got mixed up about a lot of, of this, I think. Okay? That's okay. So, but, I, but that's why I like teaching Revelation, to try to help people see that, you know, it's the same reason that you're familiar with the books, The Lake Great Planet Earth? The Lake, really? Hal Lindsey's book, Lake Ray Pine, that kind of got all of this thing started with new fervor in the 70s. It went through like eight editions because they had to keep changing it all of the time. Okay, so let's look at David's mighty warriors as much as we can do today. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. That's what we're going to get now. This is more appendix. Joseph Bathshebeth. Atakmanite was chief of the three. Now these three that are going to be named, these, this is the only place we hear their names. They don't show up anywhere else in these stories. But these are, seem to be obviously three top commanders in David's, among David's fighting men. And Joseph raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahoite, as one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar. Um, but only to strip the dead. So, what's a really good moment in this story? This brief little account of something that happened in David's life. The acknowledgement of Yahweh, that Yahweh brought a great victory. That's what was missing as the story of David got further and further in. Next to him was Shema, son of Edgy the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, beans, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And who? Oh. Yahweh brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water, 
He's thirsty. And he said, Oh, that someone would get for me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, where the Philistine garrison is. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. They brought him the water that he wanted. What's his response? But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before Yahweh, he made, which means he, made, he gave it as an offering to God. And he said, Far be it from me, Yahweh, to do this. It is not the blood, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives, and David would not drink it. I imagine when he said, Oh, I want some water from that well, he didn't think anybody would actually do it. But some of them did. They went and they made their way in and they got the water and they made their way back. But David knew it was at great risk. And he wouldn't drink it. He wasn't worthy of drinking this water that had been taken at such great risk. But he also didn't, it would be disrespectful then to just pour it out on the ground. Instead, he poured it out before Yahweh, made it an offering to God, reflecting the seriousness of what he had done, what they had done. That's a good David moment. It's kind of funny. I didn't think when we started, I talked so much about David's good moments and bad moments, but I guess that's all of us, huh? Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. So, Seemingly, you got the three, and then you got Abishai, and the three, and then you have the, divide, the fighting men divided up into these groups. Again, going back to these earlier days of David. And so we come in verse 20 to whom, Charles? Benaiah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabziel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two Midas warriors, he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. We're not told why he did this, but he did it. Who else killed a lion famously in the Bible? How about Samson? Samson. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club, only a club. And he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Ah, yes, yes, children. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty. But he was not included among the three. Notice he's not, he, we have met him earlier. 
but, but he's not one of the three in these opening paragraphs. And, but David put Benaiah in charge of his bodyguard. So another one of those characters, people you meet in the Old Testament that you'd like to know more about. I know Charles would like to shake his hand, right Charles? It's one of your heroes, right my friend? Why did he go into the pit to fight the lion? Okay, <laughs> but you know what? Someday, post-resurrection, you're going to get to ask them, I hope, okay? So, we're going to stop there so that in the next week I can practice these long names because now we're going to recount. We're going to recount the 30, and you can, maybe you should read ahead and see if any of those names look familiar to you or not. And then finally, we will come to the last appendix um, in the book of Samuel. So, my friends, two days to Thanksgiving. So let us, be, let us be grateful, grateful, grateful. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, indeed, let us be grateful, grateful, grateful. Let us exalt you. You are our rock. We live in difficult times. Not as difficult as times have been before, but difficult times. That seems to be our way. So much of humanity does, does not even strive to come to your Lord. But let us be ready to proclaim to the world your goodness, to our neighbors, to our children. Let, a, let them see your love in us as we love others. Um, help us to be good witnesses for these things we can do in this world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.